Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here with Mike of Wealth Simple. Is that how you pronounce it? I think you nailed it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so thanks for coming back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, when we last left our heroes, you were a small little uh, fintech startup of seven. Um, you can go listen to the old episode on on uh, on small rooms, but uh, why don't you? Can you in I guess it was a year ago, and a year and a few months. Maybe you can very briefly bring us up to speed to where you're at now, and then we can talk about how you got there. Yeah. Um, you know, we were just joking before the show. We were seven people a year and a half ago, or I guess a year and a little bit ago. Um, we're now about 43 people. Uh, we raised $32 million in financing last year, acquired a company. Uh, we've kind of grown the business. We, what we do is we help people invest. We make it really easy using technology. and. We're now managing about a half billion dollars in assets for about 15,000 Canadian clients. So really excited about what's That's happened last insane. year. That's <laughs> insane. Yeah. It's a lot yeah, of Yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting. We're having so a lot of fun. If you're managing half a billion dollars, what like what are you on par with a bank? Like where are you in terms of like It's, you know, to be frank, it's still peanuts. You know, we're talking about an industry that measures in the trillions of dollars, which is kind of a crazy big number to think about. Mm -hmm. um, but we're really happy with our growth. I mean, you know, this puts us in a great shape to build a really great long-term business. Our aspiration is to get to billions of dollars, you know, as quickly as possible, and over time build one of the largest, you know, and most innovative financial services companies in the world. If it isn't already. <laughs> uh, so okay, so you're you're seven people, and uh, you you had raised a bit of money to get to that, right? Like you had a million bucks or something like that. We raised two million as a kind of seed round from a, just a great group of angel investors when we got going. That's right. And uh, that afforded you what? That afforded us, you know, to hire those seven people, I <laughs> guess, and uh, get things off the ground, launch our first version of the product, kind of go through the regulatory application process. Our business, I think, unlike a lot of tech companies is very heavily regulated, mm -hmm. which has been a whole new learning experience in itself, um, and take us through our kind of you know first six months in business. You know, it's kind of crazy. We, we raised that round when we were six months old, um, which you know is pretty unheard of. Um, and uh, yeah, it's gonna, given us kind of the capital to move really fast. We bought a company last year, um, which is something I never would have expected to do so early in our life. And it, that sort of opportunity has been just huge for us as we've scaled this thing. How did you, so your last company was not heavily regulated or anything like that. How did you know what you needed to do to navigate that to be able to do what you wanted to do? Um, found some really smart people to work with is the short answer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, and a lot all of lawyers, the things you need to do. Uh, and did you like just shake your head and be like, oh, God, what am I doing? It's, it's kind of, you know, it's table stakes for operating in this space. You know, you need to, uh, the regulations exist for good reason. It's to protect investors and, you know, consumers at the end of the day. Um, I think there's a lot of room to improve the regulation, to create room for new sorts of models that are simple and low cost and in, you know, the best interest of, of clients and investors out there. Um, but the rules are very specific. So you kind of know what you have to do when you launch. But, you know, there are companies like, um, Uber and a sort of Airbnb and maybe some other Canadian fintech companies that there's two ways to approach it. One is you cross your T's and dot your I's, and the other way is to just do your thing, do what you think might be right by the market, and then hope that the law catches up. So you chose the former, not the latter. Yeah, you know, while I love um, many parts of the kind of Uber and Airbnb model uh, in terms of challenging the status quo, when you're dealing with people's life savings, it's a little bit, the stakes are a little bit different. 
Yeah. You know, and the government takes it very seriously. Um, and at the end of the day, kind of, I'm the one on the line. I'm what's called the ultimate designated person. It's oh, very, yeah. Very kind of fancy title, right? When it comes to the, the UDP? regulation. The UDP. I just made that up. That's actually I'm, exactly I'm not what surprised. it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. You personally are. I'm personally that. Uh, which means, you know, at the end of the at the end of the day, if if we're ever offside with the regulatory regime, I am ultimately responsible for for that. And, you know, you see what happens to people when they are offside, and and I don't want to be that. So, you know, it's when you're dealing with money, it's a very sensitive topic for obvious and for great reasons. Uh, you know, you need to be thoughtful about how you're managing it. So we we can't quite um, be Uber in that sense. That's not to say we're not trying to push the regulatory framework. We just sure. have to work with from the inside. Differences. We to. we try to work with the regulators and inform the regulators and open our books and share data to try and you know shape their thinking and, and evolve their thinking with them. It's a longer process, um, but I think it's the only viable one. Um, is that scary? Not or really. That's the UDP thing. Not really, and and I'd say that for you know a simple reason, which is I believe what we're building is superior than many of the models that exist. To protect clients and help them achieve success, mm -hmm. you know, if I thought we were doing anything nefarious, I probably would be really scared, but I don't. I think that what we're doing is, you know, there is zero conflict, so we're totally aligned with our clients, which is very different than most of the industry. Right. Yeah, you know, we make investing more accessible. We have no account minimums, whereas most advisors won't work with you unless you got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and our fees are super low. I mean, how can that model, you know, not stand for protecting investors and helping them be successful? So. You know, in the context of that, I feel great because the regulator should want to work with us to see our model in the hands of as many Canadians as possible. So how do you build trust? I know a good friend of mine works for a company called Merrill Lynch in the States. He, he directly invests, like he, he works with, he is the prototypical person you're talking about. He has high net worth individual clients. He has a billion or so, $2 billion under his, his watch. And uh, he, you know, he has more hair than me, but I think he's losing it because people are, you know, as the market kind of does whatever the market does, people hold him accountable to it. Um, and there's a throat to strangle. There's a person where you can be like, you know, what's going on? And he has to kind of assuage their fears. Um, how as a small, at least at the, at the outset, you were a smaller company. How did you deal with the fact that people are like, why would I give you my money when I have some big brand that's, you know, ostensibly better only in the sense, sense that it's a big brand? How, how did you manage that? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, we've tried to do a few things. Um, you know, I think you nailed it though. Our, our biggest challenge to building a really big business is trust. You know, in Canada in particular, there are five banks here and they've been around for everybody, every, ever, you know, forever and everybody has a relationship with one of them and um, they're very trusted brands. So how do you create that trust so that people want to give you their life savings? It's a very difficult problem. Um, we've done a few things. So one is, you know, we tried to get really amazing people involved in the company. So the head of our investment committee, when it comes to throats to strangle and all the rest, <laughs> I'm not sure he would like me saying that. <laughs> Um, is a guy named Professor Eric Kirzner. You know, he um, built the very first ETF in the world back in 1989, which is one of the greatest kind of financial inventions of the last 30 years. He's been an advocate of low-cost passive index investing for 30 years. Um, he is one of the world's foremost experts in investment management, and he helps design our portfolio. So one is, you know, get really amazing people that have trusted brands and names in the space to be part of the business. That's one. Two was deep pockets. You know, we're not going anywhere, so. I mentioned when we were six months old, we raised a $30 million round um, from one of the largest financial institutions in the world. You know, they managed Power, Power Financial, which gave us the, the money, 
um, manages about a trillion dollars globally. Hmm. So when you say you're backed by a company like that, it creates also a sense of stability and you know um, there's a future to this business. It's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. The third, which is kind of the most exciting part recently, is um, building a brand. So we're in the midst of our first ever major ad campaign. Uh, we had a Super Bowl ad this year, which mm-hmm. was a whole fun kind of experiment and um, made a lot of sense economically speaking here in, in the Canadian market, which is very different than the U.S. And we're trying to build a trusted brand. Um, we think we can build a better brand than the banks, one that is human, you know, is relatable, um, doesn't try to mystify you know, the whole experience around finance, but actually makes it something that people want to talk about. Um, and so we're excited about that. Is, is you know, secret option number four the fact that um, you are targeting and or have seen success in the millennial group who don't have you know, deep, of you know millions of dollars or thousands of dollars in finances they're building their wealth and so you know trusting a company like you um you're not moving all of your wealth over immediately you can speak yeah, to them better I, th- I think that's exactly right so, so you know one of the things that we've done which is different than everybody else is we have no account minimum mm-hmm. and you know what that does is i can say to you try us yeah <laughs> everywhere else you know hey you want to work with me i got to convince you to give me every dollar you ever earned in your entire life to be a client that's a really hard ask versus me as Put in a hundred bucks, see what you think. Mm-hmm. You know, after a month, I guarantee you're gonna be blown away by the experience. You're gonna to wanna to move your money over. But let me earn your, your trust rather than me try to buy it or sell you on it up front. It's a totally different sales process. And millennials, you know, I think more willing to, to dip a toe in the water and see what it's like. So I think that's, um, that absolutely works. But the, one interesting thing though, on trust building, is our last business totally different space, right? I was it was a Y Combinator company um, down in the valley. We did, um, you know, we help people kind of share their save and share their memories. So totally different business. But we asked people to kind of trust us with their shoebox of old photos in the closet, which is are people's most precious possessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a lot of problem kind of handing over that to us with the same sorts of questions: Are you going to be around? How do I know they're going to be safe? And Greylock, one of the kind of top VCs in the in the Valley, was an investor, and through that, Reed Hoffman would sometimes come in and sit in on board meetings. Hmm. So you know, founder of LinkedIn, kind of mm-hmm. amazing visionary That's entrepreneur, PayPal, mafia exactly. style, the mafia guy, yeah, you know. yeah. PayPal mafia, yeah, yeah, mafia. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he used to say to us, you know, you can worry about it, but anything you do, um, none of the things you do are going to fix it. The only way to fix it is to get big. You know, that the only way to earn trust is, is to be big and so focus on growing, focus on growing, and one day you're never going to have that problem again um, where people don't trust you, but until, you know, you'll have it until you don't mm. sort of thing. And I think we have that same thing here. I think despite the fact we've done lots of things really well to build trust, you know, until we're a big, really big brand and a really big company that people have seen, you know, we're always going to have that same question and, and people are always going to be asking that. So. It's true. It's it's a perception thing more than it is an actual thing. You're trustworthy. How do you remind people? Because I think often with startups, and, and this is probably true with you guys now and before, um, your competition is not someone else. It's just doing nothing, isn't it? Like, I could put 100 bucks in Wealthsimple, or I could just not, you know, I could just go buy a coffee. Like, I don't. So you have to get, you have to encourage people to act, I assume. Have you, have you found that? And how do you get people to, like, put in that first $100 to get the experience? Yeah, I mean, our, our feeling is we got to make it as easy as possible, and that's the only way. You know, our, our aspiration is it should be as easy to invest as ordering an Uber. You know, mm-hmm. we're not there. Um, I think we've come a long way. When we when we launched the business, 
95% plus of all investment accounts in this country were still open with pen and paper. You know, you'd have to print 30 pages of paperwork, either walk it into a bank branch or fax it somewhere or mail it somewhere just to get started. It would take weeks. You know, with us, you could download our app, you can go to our website, it takes 10 minutes or less. I'd like it to be a lot faster than that, but it's, you know, we're required to ask a couple questions uh, mm -hmm. to make sure you are who you say you are and to build a portfolio that's right for you. Um, so it's, you know, it's trying to make it so simple that the moment you have, everybody has a thought in their mind that it says at one time, you know, investing is smart, I should really do that. So if we can catch you at that moment or inspire you at that moment and make it so easy for you to get started, that, that's how we've kind of tried to solve that today. So, so what have you learned? Like, what have, it's been a year. Um, I remember you, that was sort of the same sort of narrative before. Download the app, takes 10 minutes. Maybe you can take some photos of yourself, make sure you're you, whatever. <laughs> Selfies, uh, that's not true. But <laughs> what have you learned? Like, what's worked and what hasn't? Are there any key insights that you've learned that you, that you either lost customers on where you're like, oh, we shouldn't have you know, shown them, shouldn't have made them do a selfie. That was just a silly thing. Or the mobile channel is really working and nobody comes on the web. We didn't totally expect that. Yeah, I mean, um, we've learned a lot. So, um, you know, in terms of mobile, about 50% of our new clients sign up from a mobile. Mm -hmm. um, mobile is usually a smaller account balance to start. You know, mm -hmm. it's easier to type in $500 versus on the web, it's easy to transfer kind of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been kind of an interesting experience for us, though, you know, mobile has been a hugely important client acquisition tool for us. Um, we're learning lots. Um, is it worth doing like, I mean, you're, you're on iOS for sure. Are you on Android as well? Yeah. Being not an Android user on Windows phone. We are not, we are not on <laughs> Windows phone. And apparently the Android app actually works really well on BlackBerry. Does it? I had no idea, but we've heard that a few times. So that's, it's up to know. Rim to I mean, exactly. BlackBerry to make sure that happens. Yeah. So have, are you finding, because you know, often when you're investing in that, say a mobile channel, one thing I've noticed is a lot of companies are, are not spending as much on mobile because they're like, hey, you know, getting it to work on iPhone and iPad and just and, and Android this and Android that, uh, that spend might not be worth keeping all those apps up to date. Are you finding oh, that's it ridiculous? It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a platitude at this point to say that mobile's the future, mm -hmm. um, but mobile is the it's future. The present, isn't yeah, it? is the yeah. <laughs> I mean, like if you're serious about building a business that's you want to be around and makes a difference and transforms, you know, an experience or an industry or or just delivers a delightful product to to clients, you have to be, mm -hmm. you know, serious about mobile. Mm -hmm. um, and a big part of our team is dedicated. You know, we have a dedicated iOS team, a dedicated Android team at the company. Um, Why not just do like a web, you know, a little container and have a little web view and you're done? You know, we have a mobile website that works really well too. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, from my, my perspective, you want to be available cross channels where, where people want to use it. I, and our experience, you know, what interesting thing for us is when we launched the business, we just had a website. And we asked clients, do you want an app? And the answer was no. You know, I, I'm fine checking my website. That's how I do my banking anyways. So, you know, don't bother. We said, we're, you know, no, no, we're going to do this. We think it's actually really important. And we launched the app. And what we've seen since then, a third of our clients log into the apps every day. Hmm. You know, and so part, partly that's bad because clients shouldn't be checking their accounts, you know, every day. But we also have some really awesome kind of content that we're creating and we're kind of engaging our, our clients in a really nice way with that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, Mobile has been a hugely important tool for us to engage with our clients. And when our mission is to help shape their behaviors, help them become really disciplined and smart investors over time, having that daily touch point or, you know, weekly touch point, it's really powerful in helping us achieve, you know, our mission, which is to help them be successful.
Hmm. So, so it's not just an acquisition tool, it's an engagement tool. Oh, it's, it's hugely important as an hmm. engagement tool for us. So do you find, so their behavior, is there, does their behavior differ from desktop to mobile? Like people are checking their balances or whatever they shouldn't be doing on mobile and on desktop, they're just transferring money. Is that kind of how it, for those group, that group of people, or is it just all over the place and there's no pattern? I think we, there's, I, I don't know enough of the data to be honest, mm -hmm. but we certainly see more checking behavior on mobile. It's so easy to do it. You know, you open mm -hmm. the app, you check, you close it. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's like a, such a seamless sort of experience. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah. So let's go back to, you, you'd raised $2 million, which is not an insubstantial amount of money, um, especially in Canada for a startup, right? Like Canada, like series A's in Canada are like a few million dollars, right? Like that's kind of it. And then you're like, I think we need $30 million. Um, first of all, how did you, why did you think you need it? And the second question will be, um, why so soon and like what, yeah, why that much? So the first question is, why did you think you need $30 million? Yeah. And not 40 and not 10. Yeah. So um, I guess a few reasons. So one is, um, Again, with this idea of trust building, you know, how this challenge that we face as a company around how do we build trust with clients? And for us, it, it meant a few different things. So one is give people the idea and the confidence that we are not going anywhere. So the round had to be substantial enough that, you know, we gave that kind of impression to the public that this is a business, they're growing really fast and hey, they're on, sure, you know, sure, solid financing footing and they're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So that was A. B was, well, in addition to that, we also want to do things to build trust over time. So one was we want to do ad campaigns. You know, ad campaigns are not cheap. Um, and, you know, to do it at the production quality that we wanted to, where it's not, you know, hacked together in a, in a basement and kind of looks like it's hacked together in a basement, we were really thoughtful. You mean like my show, this show right here? No, no, no. <laughs> you should check out the tech setup we have in this room. It is something else. Yay, Apple. I mean, wait, what? <laughs> Um, you're building a brand, right? Like yeah. you're building a consumer-facing brand. That's not cheap. That's not cheap. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we needed capital to be able to do that. And then, you know, thirdly, we, we acquired a company. And I think one of the things, you know, you asked what did we learn. One of the other things we've learned is you got to control, you know, every element of the experience for your clients. Um, maybe that's not true in some industries where there are great partners that have modern technology and APIs you can, you know, use. But in our business, you know, a big part of the experience is actually controlled by the broker. So who actually holds the money, trades the, you know, account for us. Um, and when we launched, we had a third party doing that. And what we realized is, you know, this, everybody knows financial services is a very archaic, kind of slow moving industry and the technology is anything but modern and fast and seamless. And we realized actually we needed to control that if we wanted to deliver the sort of experience we were aspiring to. And you know, if there was ever anything that was breaking in the experience, it was because of this kind of third party integration that just So what was your experience? Work. I would like, I you'd, would you'd say, like you'd sign up on WellSimple yeah. and that'd all be great and simple and then you'd try and transfer money and it'd be like five days later, why isn't the money in my account? And then right. it'd be in your account and then you'd be like sitting there for three days and like, why hasn't it been traded yet? Whereas now, you know, because we own that experience end to end, if you put in money today, you should be in a fully invested portfolio within 24 hours, you know, and we can control that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're at 24 hours, I'd like to bring it down to, you know, instant. Mm -hmm. And so we can actually do things to make that a reality. Whereas before we were dependent on a third party that would never care as much about the business and our clients as we do, that would never have the sort of technology capability that we do. And, you know, that, that to us is uh, just a huge lesson in, 
if you want to deliver you know a truly differentiated sort of experience you have to own kind of every element that'll go into to creating it's that very apple yeah, yeah in that sense right it's like let's yeah. build a chip too screw intel we're gonna build it so why and this is, might be a silly question but why not just build that why not create your own brokerage and then build the it's a great question so for us you know there's a few different things so one is time to market um you know you want to build a brokerage from scratch uh, <laughs> if you think that um being what's called a portfolio manager which is what we are is a heavily regulated business uh, the brokerage business kind of takes it to a different level in different ways because you're actually touching money mm -hmm. um and so you know that would take us time to kind of get through an application process second you know, there is a depth of expertise that comes, the company we bought has been around 30 years. There's a real depth of expertise that comes with managing a business like this for 30 years. You know, what are the edge cases that would take us, you know, time to see and then we'd have to learn and kind of put out fires just to be able to manage. In this case, we bought a business that's seen it all before. And that's been a huge step for us to be able to get, you know, product up and running that works really well, really quickly. Um, so, you know, this was for sure the right way for us to go on this, this run. And then, I mean, you're also like, you lean towards being a technology company. You're not, I mean, I guess you're a financial services company, but you're a technology company and a customer support company. So necessarily building up that expertise in-house, did that make sense? You, you could have, but it's, is that really what you want to do? Um, I mean, you know, I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you kind of do what you have to. So if we decided that we yeah. wanted to launch, we would have had to go out and acquire that expertise. Um, we do have financial services expertise in the company. Sure. We have to, you know, in terms of, of how we build portfolios and invest and manage and the research that goes into that. Um, but, uh, you know, this was certainly a really great way to do it. And, you know, that company came with people that have been around the brokerage industry for the last 30 years. Um, they built and started other brokerages. So there's also like an entrepreneurial spirit mm -hmm. there. Um, so it's, it's, it's actually worked out really well. And then mashing up the, because you wanted, the, the, from the user's perspective, the well simple user's perspective, it had to be pretty transparent, right? Mm -hmm. I do a thing and magically things happen. Was there like a technology integration that had to happen to make it go? And was that like yeah. the hardest part? Yeah, yeah. So we basically threw a team of, you know, ex-Amazon engineers, some of the early engineers on AWS and, hmm. you know, at our back office and have created what I believe is the most efficient, most modern and automated back office in the country, if not the world. Hmm. And, you know, that to us is now, could be a whole new product line, same way that AWS did it. Yeah. You know, we've got this great asset. The reason we have it is because no one else could kind of live up to the standards of what we were looking for. There's lots of great new companies that are looking for that standard. We have it now. Um, and it's, you know, all works through APIs and the way that we kind of would integrate with any third parties we have an asset that we can go and monetize and rent to other companies looking to do interesting things in the space. Is it, uh, would you do that? Because is that not a competitive advantage for yours to? I mean, same way that you'd ask for AWS, you know, is it a competitive advantage to be able to store your data really cheaply? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yes, but you know, more scale is great. Mm -hmm. uh, a new business line is great. <laughs> we're gonna compete, you know, I'm not sure we're gonna compete on the most efficient back office in the world. That's not how we're gonna build our brand. Mm -hmm. So for us, you know, if we can support other businesses that are trying to move the industry forward, that's a really nice partnership and a really great way to work together. And we can continue to compete on brand and all the other front-facing kind of client experiences. So when you like raise $30 million, it's not an insignificant, and, and the company that did it, it's it's not a, is it a Canadian company? Or is mm -hmm. it, it is a Canadian yeah, it's company. it's based in Montreal. Know. Oh, yeah, it's a massive cool. company nobody knows about. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you, 
and because of your investor and because of the amount, did you, I think I asked you this question a year ago, but did you not show now show up on the radar of more traditional financial institutions if you didn't before, or were you not? Yeah, yeah. I think you know. I think we were on the radar, but then we were, you know, suddenly, oh wow, they're real, um, yeah. you know, sort of thing. Um, and we've seen that's you know one of the most rewarding things about our business is we're a year and a half old, and we've already seen, you know, the industry move from when we launched and tried to partner with some of the banks actually, and them saying, you know, you guys are crazy and this is never going to work. To two of them launching directly competitive offerings. You right. know, BMO just launched in January a company called. Uh, Product called Smartfolio, mm-hmm. um, and they're advertising like crazy all over. Um, oh, apparently really? not. Doing I'm a really BMO well. customer. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think um, I think it's a challenge for them. Yeah. For them, you know, they struggle with the fact that um, there's a lot of vested interests within the bank to keep people in higher fee mutual funds, and moving them towards a lower fee ETF modern experience uh, challenges that mm-hmm. and there are people that have you know really conflicting mandates and that that makes it really tough to grow a, a business so you know they've come to market they're launching they've launched they're spending a ton of money on it but I think you know we have the advantage we have none of that conflict you know we're absolutely laser focused on one thing which is helping young professionals you know achieve their long-term investment goals and um, be really successful in that that's I mean I think you might have already answered the question but I just wanted to unpack that a bit more because um, as you say, of all the institute, of all the kind of markets to go after, of all the things in the world, like financial institutions, they've got some money. So you're competing with probably the best capitalized companies in the world, Canada, Canadian banks, and being some of them, right? How does that not keep you up at night? Or how do you how do you combat that? I mean, obviously you worry about it amongst all the other things you worry about, but how do you say, okay, you're so well capitalized, you can just throw money at the problem? I think you already inv- answered in, in some respects by saying, oh, look, there's some conflict of interest internally about that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we don't think about them that much. And no. I think that's the way you do it. Um, we are uh, focused on one thing, which is we know exactly who are, you know, the one thing we think we can do better than uh, the banks, and they can throw as much money as they want at the problem, and they'll never get this right, is we know exactly who our clients are. You know, they're 25 to 40 or 45 year old young professionals that, you know, this is the perfect client. I know investing is smart, but hell, I don't want to have anything to do with it, <laughs> you know? Just, I'd rather someone just deal with it for me. I kind of want to simplify my life and trust that they're going to do a really smart, easy job, and I want it to be low cost, simple, all the rest of it. That's our target client. That's how we build everything. We build our products to service them. We build our ads to, you know, and our brand and our content to service this segment of the market. If a bank comes out with an ad campaign, it's got to talk to everybody. Right. You, know, you can't leave anybody out. Right. So you can't just talk to young people because then what are their old clients going to feel? And you know you can't just talk to this segment because what is you know that department going to feel like? And so it's the same in the product experience. You know we can't have products that only service a certain segments. So for in our mind, we can be best at this one thing, um, and if we just focus on that, that's going to be our path to to winning. That's that's true for startups basically. Right? I think like so. Focus on your market, just at at the expense of everything else. Focus on your target market. And the big brains can't move fast enough or target properly to get there from here. And I also appreciate you calling me a young professional and put me put me in that age bracket. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Do you think you're also like capitalizing? Startups are hip right now, or you know they're they're yeah, in the zeitgeist yeah. culturally. Um, do you think there's something about the fact that there there's this sort of knee jerk anti big brand uh, reaction to things where people are like looking at brands and they're like, I don't trust you. Yeah. Uh, and this startup over here is speaking my language. 
Um, and because they're in the zeitgeist, they're somehow more trustworthy. Do you think there's some of that going on? I think there is. Um, you know, maybe less so than I'd like there to be here <laughs> in Canada. So, you know, everywhere else in the world, um, you know, we had this massive financial crisis not that long ago, and we all remember what that was, and it shook people's confidence in the banking system everywhere except Canada. Right. You know, our banks were kind of held on a pedestal as these are great <laughs> banks. You know, they don't go out of business and all the rest of it. So. You know, we never had that sort of major public distrust of the banks coming here in the Canadian market, um, which I think has helped other markets, you know, kind of accelerate new models. That said, uh, I think people love to hate the banks here. You know, we love them because we know they're here, we know they're safe, we kind of feel, you know, trust, trusting towards them. At the same time, we kind of know in exchange for that we get screwed on fees and, you know, we don't really love, who loves going into the bank branch and calling the bank? It's not. No, I'm not high like, on any. Yeah. Like, look, I have a mortgage. I'm like, I'm not going to a bank. I just, yeah. I'm like, I don't think you're going to do right by me. I just, you just know it. And so, you know, I think that that sort of sentiment of, I just wish there were a simpler solution out there that made it easy and was transparent and low cost. I think everybody relates to that that sentiment. Mm -hmm. So I think we've been able to tap into that. And you know, when when you look at if when you come to our site, you know, I think it looks and feels very different. Yeah. than a bank would, you know, and if you go to our blog, you know, we don't talk to people about, you know, prime and interest rates and all these things that nobody really knows about or cares about and kind of mystifies and confuses people. We talk to people about, hey, you know, really aspirational things. You want to buy a second home someday, but don't really know how you're going to get there. Why don't you think about buying a tiny house for $29,000? Oh, actually, like maybe, you know, there's a path to me getting a second home someday and it's, you know, $29,000 may be aspirational, but it's maybe within grasp if I'm someone that's able to save and invest. You know, how do you take a year off and live in Berlin? You know, we do interviews with people like Spike Lee and Richard Linklater and like really cool icons that, you know, represent, you know, people that we kind of are interested in their life stories and we tell really interesting stories about their relationships with money. Mm -hmm. You know, banks don't do that. <laughs> so it's a totally different experience. So yeah, I mean, that's a great segue to <clears throat> the brand building that you've been doing. Um, you've done some interesting things, actually pretty cool things. Uh, first was the, the notable stuff. There's a lot of notable stuff, but the ones that stick out in my brain is the, the Super Bowl ad that you did in Canada, because at least until this year, and now no longer, I guess, uh, you can run your own ad, Canadian ad, on the Super Bowl. I think next year it's just American ads are coming up here. That's right. You guys chose to do that. Um, I think you got as much play out of the ad itself as the talking about the fact that you're, you did the ad. Um, why, like, why do that? Why, like, and did you expect the, the talk about the ad to be as much as the ad itself? We were hoped, um, <laughs> and we were really happy with it, you know. Um, for us, you know, we, we are a company that's all about making smart investments. So, you know, when we went to do our ad campaign, we kind of knew how much money we wanted to spend on building the brand and on this campaign. And, you know, it was launching around the time of the Super Bowl. So kind of the media buying agency we've been working with brought the Super Bowl to us as just a, you should know kind of what's available. And they kind of disregarded it. But when I went through the numbers, I kind of had to do a double take because it seemed too good to be true. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that the US Super Bowl is a big boondoggle. It's $5 million US for a 30 second spot. That's crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what we found in Canada, it's only like $170,000. Mm -hmm. And so it's still a lot of money for 30 seconds. Don't get me wrong. But the only way you can assess whether or not an ad is successful or not is around efficacy, 
right? How many eyeballs am I getting? How engaged is the audience? How effective is it? So what do we know about the Super Bowl? One is, per capita, more Canadians watch than the U.S. 55% of Canadians watch the Super Bowl versus 50% of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Second, um, what do you do during the Super Bowl? You watch the ads. Like people are paying attention. It is probably the one, you know, nobody watches ads anymore. You're mm -hmm. kind of always kind of recording and fast forwarding the ads on TV, except during the Super Bowl where people are kind of glued to the television and excited to see what happens. So suddenly we've got, um, if you look at the numbers per capita, one of the least expensive ads on live television in Canada and one of the most engaged audiences. And if you line that up with, you know, our ad campaign, which was launching, it was the first ad we launched in the campaign. You get, you kick it off with kind of the broadest possible audience that would ever see it in this highly engaged format. And then over the next three or four months, you know, you hit them again and again across all the sorts of different channels that were part of your plan. So for us, it just, you know, it made sense as an investment because it was the lowest cost kind of live event out there. And it was a great way to kick off the campaign. And so totally counterintuitive because nobody thinks about the Super Bowl well, that way. Especially like, you know, millennials and television, like it just doesn't exactly. add up, but it adds up. In this, in this specific case, yeah, it adds the up. Yeah, one time it yeah. adds up. And so for us, you know, it made a ton of sense. And, um, you know, we were happy. We wrote a great blog post about the economics of it. And um, kind of got, a, like you said, a lot of press out of that. And then the, the ad itself was lots of fun. Um, how did you, I mean, you also chose to rebrand around that time, right? With the new font and the new look and all that stuff. Um, how, how, do you, how do you know when you're done? Because you know, you're a startup, you've built your reputation, you've got funding based on that reputation, and then you're like messing with something that has some cachet, right? So obviously you didn't change your name. That's the only thing you didn't change, I think. I think that's <laughs> how right. Do you, how do you know when you're, you're like, okay, this is enough. This is enough. This is the right palette. This is the right font. This is the right channels. I'm not sure we are ever. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there is a thing is enough. Mm -hmm. um, we've been lucky. One of the one of the folks we work with, um, a guy named Rudy Adler, kind of was part of the last business too, um, is one of these rare just brand geniuses. Um, you know, he, he's done some of the most famous commercials for Apple, if you remember when they came out with the iPod, uh, the iPod mini, there was a great commercial with Feist in it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so he made that, like he's, he's got amazing brand and creative experience. Does he work for you or is he? Yeah, yeah, he's full time, he kind of leads our creative team. Um, and he, uh, he was, he's kind of the driving force behind all the brand work that we're doing. And all I can say is, you know, we have someone dedicated to this because it's so important for us. We think building a brand is about building trust you know, unlike most startups where it's really maybe just about do we have a nice looking website, you know, we're making a bet and an investment in brand in an ongoing way. So it's a, it's a living part of the company and you'll, you should expect a lot more from us uh, on that over time. Well, I just, the other thing that sticks out in my mind and it was the thing you did with Shopify. Yeah. Which was <laughs> kind of right. awesome. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, that was a little bit of a risky bet. Um, we know the guys at Shopify, we didn't know if they'd appreciate it, but they, uh, they were super, you know, um, awesome about it. So Shopify, um, you know, for those that don't know, a great Canadian success story went public um, this year. And um, when you go public, there's a lockup period where, you know, inside people like employees aren't able to sell their options uh, for a certain number of days. Um, and then kind of the lockup period all ends on one day. So we knew kind of when that day was, and um, we decided to make a stunt out of it. And we bought a billboard in the, sh in the Shopify parking lot that basically said, dear Shopify employees, here's what to do with your stock options. <laughs> and it had a link 
to a blog post that we had written about you know how to think about stock options and then obviously you know where should you put them well well simple would be a great option if you should consider <laughs> and, um, and dead links to all the other places <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, and they loved it you know you know it was yeah. a little bit of a risky bet but they loved it um, kind of some of their senior leadership team all reached out and said this is awesome <laughs> you know for them it's a scary day you know they don't know how you know it's also a big milestone of a day and these no. are people coming into money, they, they truly, they were like, oh, yeah. shit, I never really knew. Yeah. And for them, they want to make sure that they're being smart about it and thoughtful about it. You know, they built a business, they've earned it, they've done a really great job. And so, you know, I think that they love the playfulness. But also, if you read the article, it was actually a really thoughtful, helpful article. So I think they appreciated kind of the play off those two things. That, right, right, right. Yeah. So, like, we could talk for hours, and I would love to talk for hours. But I'm curious, as we start to wind down... You, you've got a lot on the go. You're building a brand. You're building out different product lines, yeah? You're thinking about other markets. So how do you, how do you know which is the right path to tread down and which, like, when's it, what, what, what are good experiments to run? When do you stop? When do you go into other markets? Like, how do you balance all that? That's a big tough, question. I know yeah. it's a big question. Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, you know. Okay, so let's start. <laughs> let's carve it down a bit. So product-wise, yeah, you've got a product. It's working. You're refining it constantly. Yeah, so you're, you're thinking about other product lines. It's very tempting, especially when you're a product company, to be like, let's do all these other products because everyone's like, you know what you should do? Cats. Yeah. I have like this thing for cats. I don't always yeah, bring yeah, this yeah. cats up every every episode. But of cats, course. investments for cats. Why? 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 How do you? Filter that noise. Well, don't you know? Let it slip that we're building investments for cats. But um, <laughs> that marketing idea came from this show. Yeah. Um, so pro product for me, I actually think is something we've gotten pretty good at. Um, so we have, you know, we're really serious about values at, at Well Simple, and one of them is simple is better. And so if you look at the product, you know, until now it's actually been really, really simple. Mm -hmm. And one of the goals for this year is we're going to evolve it. Um, so that it is more, you know, once a client is logged in, that they have more that they can do with the product in terms of views and stuff that they want to see, but always with the value of simple is better. So we're trying to maintain kind of the simplicity of the experience. We think that's a huge part of the value proposition. But one, one thing that we've kind of gotten better at, which we were not very good at in the last company, where we kind of, like you suggested, overbuilt features all the time. Uh, we're really good at testing things. So we just launched two weeks ago, um, our first socially responsible portfolio. Mm -hmm. This is something that our clients, like you said, all said they wanted. You know, it was the number one requested feature was, hey guys, you know, love the idea, but I only really want to invest if you've got a socially responsible portfolio, something that aligns with my values. And we kind of said, okay, lots of people are asking for it, but you know, should we invest all this time in building kind of a whole product experience around it? So we wrote a blog post instead. Hmm. 200 people signed up in the first 24 hours, and we said, wow, we, got, we actually have you know, a product here. Mm -hmm. um, so now we're actually building it into the product experience. To, to be contrarian about this, before they're like, I, I totally wouldn't use a mobile app. Then you give them a mobile app, then they use it. Yeah. Now <laughs> you have a blog post and you're like, totally, I'd totally do that. How, you know, how do you know that they would? Well, it's it's tough, you know. Who, who, who is it, Steve Jobs, that said people don't know what they want uh, yep. until you give it to them? So yep. I think like sometimes you sometimes have to place a bet. Mm -hmm. You know, so we are certainly going to be placing bets where, you know, either nobody's ever said anything, or something doesn't exist, like a new product idea that just doesn't exist anywhere. Um, that, so no, people don't even know what to ask for that we'd like to create, mm -hmm. and we'll be doing that. But at the same time, you know, when people do ask for things, sometimes they, it's useful. And I think if you can find our, our approach in that in that scenario is if you can find the simplest way to test and validate someone's interest and there's a market there, that's the best way to do it. I mean, you know, I, I often tell the story of the first version of Wealth Simple was a spreadsheet. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we sold our last business, the team made a little bit of money and they wanted to know what to do with it. Knowing that I was an investor, they all asked me for help and I built a spreadsheet that showed them how to set up a portfolio and manage it themselves. So like it took me a night, you know, and that was that. Mm-hmm. And the feedback was, Mike, we love it, but just do it for us and we'll pay you for you. You know, it will pay you for that. I had 10 clients and that kind of became the first version of the product. So I, my, our view is always, you know, what is your spreadsheet? You know, what is the simplest possible version of a feature or product that you think you want to test that you can validate that there's real, you know, demand and interest for it? And I think we've gotten pretty good at that. Even as the company grows, because that, that story, that narrative is great for when you're like a guy in a basement or a gal in a basement. Yeah. But as the company grows and you're like 40 something people, you know, that. No, we the, uh, listen, you know, we're so inspired by TripAdvisor. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know if you know about the TripAdvisor tests. Mm-mm. They used to throw up links on the website that's like, click here for this feature. And if you clicked, all you'd say, all I'd say was coming soon, right. you know, and there was nothing there, but they used it as a way to say, what are people clicking? Mm-hmm. What's actually driving traffic and interest towards something? And we think that's awesome. You know, that if you can, you, maybe that's not right in all cases, but the simplest way you can test, regardless of the size and stage of the company, and certainly that'll evolve over time. You know, we're not going to put out any hacky looking sort of sure. materials anymore, but um, at the same time, you know, we always try and find the simplest path to, to kind of test a new. And so you prioritize that by vault noise kind of thing, like, oh, God, everyone wants socially responsible funds, but not everyone seems to want like a... No, we have a, you know, we have a, I guess, a three-part framework we use loosely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was a consultant once upon a time, so, you know, it kind of makes me sick to (laughs) say that. I was like, I just said that. Okay. (laughs) Anyways, you know, one is how big do we think this could be? So, you know, um, if we launch this new product, is it something that, like, would get five new clients, or is this something that could legitimately grow the business in a meaningful way? Um, two is how easy would it be for us to implement? So is this something that, you know, if we decided we wanted to do it, would take weeks of dev work, or is this something that we got to work on for the next six months and make a huge commitment to? Um, and then third, you know, is judgment. So the first two kind of tell you, hey, this is really easy to build and seems like it could be huge. Well, those ones are kind of no-brainers that you want to get building on. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that are, you know, could be huge but are really hard are the kind of the ones where you really got to think about it and figure out to test and what's the best way forward. And that's where judgment plays a really important role. You know, which ones of those, you can't do all of those, so which ones do you bet on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. You know, I think uh, there are people at the company that are way better at product than me and have way better product kind of insight and judgment. Uh, I usually defer to them on what we should be doing. <laughs> And I guess the last question, very briefly, because we're way over time, but that's okay. Um, markets. So you're you're building a brand in the Canadian market. That takes time, even in a small, relatively small market like Canada. As, uh, it takes a lot of time and money and effort. And you are thinking maybe about going to other markets. How do you decide when and which? Yeah, for us, that's an easy one. Um, you know, one of the other advantages to working with a company like Power which is the, uh, you know, our financier to a large extent, um, is they have uh, a business that manages a trillion dollars globally through a network of kind of subsidiaries they own all over the world. Uh, So for us, when we think about markets, the first question is, is there a way for us to work with power subsidiaries in different markets outside of Canada? Because if we can figure that out, you know, suddenly we have an advantage um, that wouldn't be available to other companies. And, you know, if we can crack that kind of model just will make a ton of sense for us to kind of go and, and build those sorts of models in different markets. Two is why, and why now, you know, we are naively ambitious about the business we're building. Um, we think we have the once in a, 
lifetime chance um, to build something truly transformative in a space that really needs it. We think we have the team, we think we have the capital, and we think we have the partner to go do that. And we think we'd be selling ourselves and the industry short if we didn't at least try to do that on a global scale. Um, and I think we also have a belief that Canada can, and sh you know, it's funny, I was at a dinner last night talking about this exact same question with you know, a great group of people around how does Canada become a leader in technology? We have all of the ingredients going for us, um, and yet we don't have that many global leaders. Um, we have very few. And so how do we actually push more companies um, out of Canada to make a, a real impact on a global scale? That's a personal passion of mine. Um, I lived in the Valley and I came back because I wanted to be part of the Canadian technology scene. And so, you know, we have massive global ambitions and we want to go do that as quickly as possible. Cool. Oh boy, so we could go on for two or three hours, but we should probably stop. Uh, thank you very much to come for coming. Uh, so if you don't already, if you want to sign up for Wealthsimple, where do you go? Yeah, just uh, download our apps, Android or iOS, go to Wealthsimple, um, wealthsimple.com, and if you decide to try us out, you'll get your first $5,000 managed for free, and we'd love to work with you. There you go. <laughs> That's worth it. Uh, thanks to Wealthsimple. Thanks to Mike for coming on the show. Thank you for to TWG for hosting us. Uh, and thanks to Nick Kuhn for producing the show. Uh, stay tuned next week for another revisited episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.